Let's open with a word of prayer, if we could. Our Father, with great joy, we come together this morning to gather as the body of Christ to look into your word, the prophecy of Daniel. Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would illumine our mind and minds and show us the truth. Lord, help us to understand it, to comprehend it, to incorporate it into the way that we think and the way that we live and our expectations and our fears and our hopes. Lord, uh, these words are true because they're your message. And so we have the great privilege of studying them this morning. And for that, we are so thankful. And we pray that all that is said in this place would be pleasing and satisfying to you and that we would give you proper glory. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is week number 53 in our study of the book of Daniel. And I appreciate your patience as we spent the the last four weeks looking at um, historical background, really, uh, that leads into our understanding of verse 26 of Daniel chapter 9. And this is the, the passage that speaks about the coming. It wouldn't happen for 586 years, but the coming destruction of the temple that Zerubbabel went back after the Babylonian captivity to build. And in particular, we've been trying to understand this phrase that says the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And so we need to understand well who it was that actually did that activity of destroying the temple and the city. And we've talked about several things. The the main point that we brought out is that by 70 AD, the estimates are that at least 50% and possibly as much as 80% of the Roman army was made up of provincials, people that they had conquered, not of Italians. And then we also saw that the historical writings say that along with um, the Roman army, there were at least 60,000 and probably more like 80 or 100,000 auxiliaries that came out of Syria and out of Arabia. And so they added to approximately 20,000 Roman soldiers, of which maybe 10,000 were Romans. So you've got 100,000 soldiers that are marching and coming on Jerusalem, and one out of every 10 at best are Italians. The other 90% are from provinces that Rome had conquered. And so as they invade the city, we saw that the Roman leaders actually gave the Jews in Jerusalem multiple opportunities to surrender, none of which they took. Some people did, but the, the mainstay did not. And so as the Romans ultimately went over the third wall and got into the city proper and then over another wall to get into the temple, the decision of the Roman leadership was that they would not destroy the temple, but they would keep it as an ornament for Rome. 
because Rome is the one who really built this temple. Uh, Zerubbabel built the original, but it had been expanded greatly over the 70 years or so before this destruction. It actually had only been completed five years before this war took place. And so they decided they would not destroy it. They would allow it to stand and that if the Jews reoccupied it and had another rebellion, then they would destroy it. But originally they would not. But the auxiliary troops that were with them had other ideas. And so in the middle of the night, they invaded and ultimately burned and destroyed the temple, uh, yeah, the temple. Even while the temple was building, the Roman leadership still tried to stop it and tried to get the fires put out and the auxiliary units would have nothing to do with that. And so ultimately they killed all the Jews, they destroyed the temple, they tore it down, they burned the walls. Um, total desolation in 70 AD and the Jews fled to many parts of the world, um, never to really return to their homeland until the last 70 years in 48 AD, sorry, 1948 AD, when they finally became a state again. And the Jews have been returning since then. There's about six million of them there now. Uh, there's still many, many Jews that are scattered around the world uh, wanting to go back to Jerusalem, but not able to. So there's not been a temple since this destruction in 70 AD. And so that has to inform the way that we think about what Gabriel said to Daniel. We'll see that this morning as we go on to verse 27. And so the, the way that I think about this is that it was not the Romans who destroyed the temple and the city, and um, but it was rather troops out of Syria and Arabia, m the majority of. There were some out of North Africa. There were some out of Egypt also um, that had joined them, but the vast majority out of Syria and Arabia. And so I've told you several times that the, the main interpretation these days of people who are premillennial is that there will be a revived Roman Empire um, that'll be European in nature, that the leader will come out of Europe, and that is who the Antichrist will be, and that's who will ultimately um, wreak havoc during the seven years of tribulation. I, I don't go with that view. My view is that it's somewhere out of the Middle East, uh, probably based out of Constantinople, uh, which is today called Istanbul, um, which is Muslim in nature, uh, all of the Middle East countries that these troops would have come out of are Muslim in nature today. Um, so that's my view, is that um, the Antichrist will come out of the Muslim caliphate um, and it'll be somewhere in the Middle East. Um, there's debate on that. You can look at it both ways. Uh, I don't demand that you agree with me, um, but that's the way that I'll teach it. And that's the way that I understand it best. And there I, I see a movement among those who are conservative going in that direction. There's more and more um, beginning to see 
that the Ottoman Empire, the caliphate that existed for almost a thousand years probably is the resurrection um, of the Antichrist kingdom in the end. Um, so anyway, that's where we kind of came out at. Um, I want to read this morning verses 26 and 27 so that we can take what we've learned in 26 and move into verse 27. So in Daniel 9, beginning in verse 26, there the scripture reads, Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be a war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So you see this passage, which really began in verse 24 and goes down through verse 27, begins with a statement about the decree of God, and it ends with a statement about the decree of God. So these 70 weeks that we're talking about here are not something that may happen, not something that could happen, but this is what God has decreed will happen. And we see through what we've seen so far that much of this has already happened. But when you get to verse 27, you have to remember that there has not been a Jewish temple since 70 AD, still isn't today. So there have been no sacrifices and grain offerings and all of the mosaic system in operation since early the first century. And also there's no place in history that I know of where there was a a covenant made And then in the middle of the establishment of that covenant, it was broken in the middle, in the middle of the covenant. Um, You can't match that up to anything that happened in 70 AD. You can't match it up, I don't believe, to anything that's happened in history since 70 AD. Um, We haven't seen the activity that is given in verse 27 in world history. And so you, you start to think about that and you say, well, the probability is that it's still then future, that it hasn't happened yet. But how does that work with the 70 weeks of Daniel? Uh, and again, this is not Daniel's prophecy. This is not even Gabriel's prophecy. This is the message that God gave to Gabriel to give to Daniel so that he might write it down that we might have it today. Because there's no way that Gabriel or Daniel could have understood how this prophecy was going to be fulfilled. There's just no way they didn't have enough information. So they knew it was true because it was from the sovereign one. But they didn't know how it was going to play out. And we've talked about this a couple of times. 
You know, the interpreters use the word weeks. That's not the best translation, I don't believe, of the original. The original would seven, say 70 periods of seven. And the translators just use weeks because when you think about the calendar, you think about time, and you talk about numbers of seven, the best one would be seven days in a week. So they just inserted weeks where the original really says 70 periods of seven. Now, I don't, I don't really have a struggle with that as long as we understand, and we looked at several reasons why I believe this is true, that the seven weeks, 70 weeks of seven, really speaks of 70 periods of seven years. So, so far we've seen detailed 69 weeks, 69 periods of seven, 69 times seven years. And we looked at that if you use the decrees of the Persian kings, three of them, um, that with Adaxarces giving the last decree, where the scripture puts the three decrees together, that of Cyrus, that of Darius, and that of Artaxerxes. Ezra 6.14 says that those three decrees were really the decree of God. That God decreed, and then these three Persian kings did what they did, volitionally and because they wanted to, but yet still fulfilled the decree of God. And so until Artaxerxes gave, gave his decree, you don't have the complete decree of God. And so we tried to match up from the decree of Artaxerxes to the time of Jesus Christ when he was crucified fits pretty well. Maybe not exactly because we go from the Jewish calendar to the Gregorian calendar, where there were mistakes were made. Everybody knows that. Um, and so pretty well matches to the time from when Artaxerxes gave his decree till when Jesus Christ was crucified 69 times seven years. Pretty close, maybe within, I can get it within five years. Um, if you study more, there are people who've done that who put it much closer than that. So all of that information tells me that when we talk about 70 periods of seven, it's really talking about 70 periods of seven years. Okay, we've seen 69 of those weeks played out, given in, in pretty good detail, ending with the Messiah being cut off and then comes the destruction of Jerusalem and the sanctuary along with it. So there's still a 70th week that has to be dealt with. And I think verse 27 is pretty explicit that the, and he will make a firm covenant for one week. That's the 70th week of Daniel. That's why 70 weeks have been decreed and we've only seen 69 fulfilled. Okay, when you come to this verse 27, you have to make a decision because we're given a pronoun, he. So who does he 
refer back to. And in my mind, there's only two possibilities because there's only two individuals that are given in this passage. One is the anointed one, what's translated in most translations as the Messiah. The other is the prince who is to come. So which one of those two does this pronoun, which is used twice in verse 70, he, who does it refer back to? And if you believe that the anointed one, because the literal translation would not be the anointed one, but an anointed one, so you have to face up to these things, I still believe that's Jesus Christ who is being spoken of there, especially for how we've been able to match that up to his crucifixion. So if that's true, then it would be absurd to interpret verse 70 of speaking as him as the he, because this he, you can see it in clear detail, is associated with abominations. And Jesus Christ would never be associated with anything that would be considered an abomination to God. So that makes no sense. So the only one left that could this be this he is the prince who is to come. So that's who I believe this is. When we get to verse 70, and he says, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Okay, so if the he is the prince who is to come, then who are the many? Because if he would wanted to say the Jews, he would have said the Jews, because that's clearly been given all through this, um, this prophecy. Maybe not in that literal term, but the people of Daniel. And if, they, if, if the message would have meant just the people of Daniel, then I think it would have said that. But it says the many. So I think of this as a broader group than just the Jews. So this covenant that is a seven-year covenant is made with multiple people groups more than just the Jews, in my mind. You can, there's, again, there's debate around these things, but if you just look at what it says, that's the conclusion that I come to. Okay, so most people who are premillennial begin to associate this verse, verse 27, with the book of Revelation and the Antichrist. So there has to be a reason for that, right? There's got to be some reason that people do that. And if you look at the activity of verse 27, you'll notice several things. There's a covenant that's made with more people than just the Jews. At the middle of that week, which would be three and a half years into seven, the covenant is broken. And then there's wars and desolations that come after that. Okay, now, we've talked about that much of the book of Daniel 
can be seen in a short-term perspective and then a long-term perspective. The, um, if you go back to chapter 8, where we talk about an abomination again, I believe that was fulfilled in the person of Antiochus Epiphanes. I think he did exactly what is given in chapter 8, but that doesn't mean it couldn't happen again at the end times. And so I want to begin to look at this and see if we can see why is it that we should take verse 27 and match it up to some things that happen in the book of Revelation. So that's what I want to try and do this morning, um, looking at several things, or the things I just named, that happened, and what literally happens in the book of Revelation. Now, I, I believe the book of Revelation is a prophecy about Jesus Christ given to John the Apostle so that we would have it today and we could match it to what is given in the prophecy given to Daniel by Gabriel. Now, if you think about it, if the 70 weeks began with the decree of the Persian kings and then it ends with the book of Revelation, then this prophecy of the decreed 70 weeks given to Daniel covers all of human history from the time of Cyrus, the Persian king, all the way until the end of the age. The 70 weeks encompasses that whole time. But we've been looking at the 70 weeks as literal. So how do you get there that the last seven years is in the book of Revelation, which clearly is at least 2,000 years removed from when Jesus Christ was crucified and the destruction of Jerusalem. How do, how do you account for that? How could it be that this 70th week has been put on hold all this time? I look at it similar to how we look at most of the prophecies that are given in the Old Testament. I mean, the New Testament makes it explicitly clear through the writings of Paul that Paul was given a mystery that was not known before it was given to Paul. The word uh, apoluchus is used, meaning taking the lid off of something and there is the mystery. And that mystery was that Gentiles and Jews alike would make up the people of God, that it would not be exclusively the Jews. And so in order to graft in the non-Jews that God has always said, although it was seen dimly in the Old Testament, made very clear in the New Testament, it's taken 2,000 years to graft in all those people whom God has chosen to be in the people of God. So most of the Old Testament prophecies saw the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ side by side. 
We'll see that in chapter 12 of Daniel when we get there, that Daniel saw the resurrection of those who had placed faith in Jesus Christ and those who had not placed faith in Jesus Christ side by side as happening at the same time. Now, depending on your bent, I believe those are separated by the church age and that there will be multiple resurrections, mainly because of what 1 Corinthians 15 says, that there will be multiple resurrections. So this delay of the 70th week for at least 2,000 years is because of the church age, just like the advent of Jesus Christ. I mean, nowhere in the Old Testament is it more clear that Jesus Christ would come at the beginning of the church age and then at the end of the church age. That's the only way that he could be one who was cut off and also one who reigns the earth with a rod of iron, is there has to be two advents. The first has already happened. The second comes at the end of the age. So that time in between there was not seen in the Old Testament. So it's not seen in this prophecy that was given to Daniel by Gabriel. And so the church age is the explanation of why there is a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. At least that's the way I see it. Because this time that we live in, the age of grace, the time in which the gospel has come to non-Jewish people, was not foreseen in the Old Testament, not clearly. Clearly it says all the nations would be blessed by the seed of Abraham. Well, that's you and me who weren't born Jews. And so it was there in the Old Testament, but not explicitly there. In the New Testament, it's explicitly there. So I see the church age as the reason there's a gap between the 69th and the 70th week of this, of this prophecy given to Daniel. Now, you'll have to think about that and see if that makes sense to you. But that's the way that it makes sense to me. It's the way that most Old Testament prophecies are interpreted, is they did not foresee the church age. All right, with that and that understanding, if you go to the book of Revelation, you begin reading in chapter 1 and verse 1, you don't see anything about the Antichrist until you get to chapter 6. And that's the, so I want to turn to Revelation and chapter 6. This is the first place in the book of Revelation that you get any hint of someone who we call the Antichrist. The book of Revelation never calls him the Antichrist. Okay, where does that term come from? That term comes from 1 John, where the same guy who wrote the book of Revelation said the spirit of Antichrist is already among us in the first century. So this is the term that most people use today to talk about what is known in the 
book of Revelation as the beast. So he's never called the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. So you go, why do people say that then? Well, it's an interpretation. All right, so in chapter 6 of Revelation, we just begin reading in verse 1 and just read a few of these. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquering. All right, most people who are premillennial believe this guy sitting on the white horse is the Antichrist, is the one who makes a covenant for seven years, not just with the Jews, but with everybody on the planet. Now you go, okay, why would it be everybody on the planet? Well, if we kept, this is the, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who comes in chapter five and takes the scroll from the Father's hand. The scroll, I believe, is the title deed to the earth. And it's been sealed as would be legally proper with seven seals. You roll up a scroll and you get to a certain point and you drop wax on it and you seal it. Then you go a little further and you drop wax and you seal it again. You go a little further, you drop wax and it seals again. You do that seven times so that the, the, the scroll is sealed seven times. And only the one who is the legal heir can break the seals. So Jesus Christ is given this scroll in chapter 5, and then he begins to break this, the seals. And as he does, cataclysmic things happen on the earth. And if we kept reading, what we would see is that with the third seal, there is famine and pestilence all over the globe that kills a fourth of the people on the planet. And then you go on, and I believe it's the sixth seal, maybe it's the seventh, it's the seventh, that there's again cataclysmic things that happen. And you could make the argument, I mean, a third of the sea is turned to blood, a third of the rivers are made bitter, um, a third of the creatures in the sea are killed. You could make the argument that a third of the people on the planet are also killed. Now, a fourth has already been killed. That leaves three-fourths of the people. A third of the three-fourths are killed. That's another fourth. So a fourth plus a fourth, that's a half. So half of the people on the planet are killed. All right? Today, there's like 6.75 billion people on the planet. So that being like almost three and a half billion people losing their life. Now, we just went through the coronavirus, right? 
there was about six and a half million people worldwide killed by the coronavirus, or at least attributed to the coronavirus. This half of the population of the world being killed is 600 times more than that. So there are dead bodies everywhere. There's not enough people to bury all the dead bodies. So you understand why there's pestilence. You understand why there's famine that kill huge scores of people. So the world at that state is looking for someone to lead them out of this mess. And here comes this guy on a white horse, majestic, glorious in his appearance. And so the world gives assent to him. And he makes a covenant. There's not going to be any wars. We've got to clean up the mess. And he leads the world to try and take grips with what's happened. You notice this guy on the white horse. He's got a bow. And it says he goes out conquering. But he doesn't have any arrows. Doesn't mention anything about him having any arrows. So he doesn't conquer by defeating people and warring against them. He defeats them by leading them out of the mess that they're in. And so the world, all the nations, not just the Jews, but all the nations give assent to this guy. He makes a covenant for seven years with the many, meaning there'd be no wars. We're not going to fight against each other. We're going to hold hands and try and get out of this because the world is upside down. It's the way I see it. I think that's what Daniel is saying. I think that's what is happening here in the book of Revelation. All right, you don't see the Antichrist again in the book of Revelation until you get to chapter 13. So, you know, we associate all this that happens in the book of Revelation with the Antichrist, and I think that's appropriate. But he is scarcely seen in the book of Revelation until you get to chapter 13. So if you turn to chapter 13. Which one? Six? Yes. Right. But if you look at that, and you look over the history of humanity, you see rulers sure. like seal number one, and you, you've seen famine, and you've seen pestilence, you've seen these massive, and you've always seen rising up of people that are going to bring the answer and the peace. So there's always a sense that God has given us a view of the, the humanity epochs that culminate Yeah, and I think you've seen this through history. Think about this. You'll remember this. 
nationalism, that term, in the late 1900s was unheard of, right? You, I mean, it was a bad word to speak of nationalism as in the United States all coming together and protecting our own. That was a dirty word. Then 9-11 happened. And what do you have? Nationalism. Everybody joining hands. And we're going we're gonna to protect our own. And now here we are, 20 years later, and nationalism is a bad word again. So, so you go in these waves that, and, and it's not just the U.S. You can look at other countries that have gone through the same thing. Exactly. Well, and, and you, you hear this today. We, we talk about we're all linked together around the whole planet, right? Well, not by choice. Um, but nevertheless, you, you hear that the global economy, the global society talked about today. Yeah, and now you hear, and I mean, you try and make this as relevant as possible, and you ought to pay attention to this, cryptocurrencies. You know, we talk about one economy during the time of the Antichrist. Well, cryptocurrencies can get you there faster than anything could. So you just got to watch this and see how it unfolds, and do we see the signs of the times? You know, um, I'm very hesitant to say, yes, we do. And the reason, because I can remember just before 2000 when scores of preachers were saying, and I remember this phrase, I just have a feeling that we're almost there because 2000 was coming. I just have a feeling. I heard it over and over and over again. 2000 came and it was a big, big dud, right? Nothing happened. It was an unevent. Computers kept, continued to work, and you know we were like, everything's going to crash. Nothing crashed. So not until 9-11. So um, I'm very hesitant to say we see the signs of the time. Well, you, you, you certainly see a uniting of the world in the thir first three and a half years. The reason I say that is because this is a covenant for seven years that's broken in the middle with the many, not just with the Jews. So that's the way that I read that. All right. What, whatever normal is, right. Who will they be marrying is the question, right? <laughs> so uh, I won't go there. All right. Yeah, I did, didn't I? Okay, I really want to give you these links as to why I think that this is the Antichrist. And I'm just going to read this and say a couple of things, and we'll stop, and I'll come back. 
I think chapters 12 and 13 of Revelation make the links for you back to chapter 9 and verse 27 of Daniel. I think that's where the links are made. And so I just want to read this. This is the Antichrist being commissioned by Lucifer and what he's commissioned to do. Verse thir chapter 13 of Revelation, verse 1. And the dragon, that's Satan, stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a great beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because of, his, of he, he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemous and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle that is those who dwell in heaven. Now, bells should be going off in your mind when we talk about 10 heads and 10 diadems and blasphemies and authority and going against those who are sided with God, all of these things we've already seen in Daniel. But notice there's one particular thing that's given here that is, I think, very important to the linkage. And that's given in verse 5. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. 42 months is exactly three and a half years. 12 months times 3, 36, add another 6, you get 42. So here we're given that this beast has authority to act for 42 months, not the time of peace, the last 42 months. The first 42 months, it's all good. They're recovering. The last 42 months, we have this beast making activity. There's more. There are other places where this 42 months is given in different terms, but equaling the same amount of time. It's given twice in chapter 12. And so that's where we'll go next week to link 13 back with 12 and also to link them back to Daniel 9.27.
Yeah, and Andy said that there's a temple that's rebuilt and the Jews go back to Jerusalem. That has to be true in order for the prophecy of Daniel 9.27 to take place where this he, the Antichrist, puts a stop to the sacrifices and to the grain offerings. There would be no sacrifices and grain offerings if there was not a Jewish temple. So there's a new temple. People call it. Right, that's their belief. That's their belief. That's the wailing wall. Um, we'll, we'll put all this together the best I can. There's just so much here. But um, I think, and this is important for you to decide for yourself, I think that the scriptures themselves, chapters 12 and 13 of Revelation, make the connection back to Daniel 9.27 without us having to force anything. And it's important if you agree or disagree with that because if you disagree, then what is Daniel 9.27 talking about? It's talking about something because you certainly want Daniel 9.25 to be true where atonement is made for sins and where access to God is made possible by Jesus Christ. Those things better be true. Otherwise, none of us have any hope in Christ Jesus. So if that's true, then what does 27 mean? Because if 27 is not true, then 24 is not, 25 is not true. And we're all desperately lost. So you need to think about these things, and next week we'll try and make those connections. Thanks for your time.